You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we're going to be in Romans 8 today, so you can go ahead and turn there if you like. Romans chapter 8 is where we're heading. Um, but we've got a few things to do before we get to Romans 8. Um, you know, when we first started Stonegate, that's been about six and a half years ago now, <clears throat> it's amazing to look back and see how many of the prayers that we were initially praying to the Lord that the Lord has already answered. Uh, and there's a long list of those that the Lord has already worked in and done things in our church family that have just been incredible in, in answer to those prayers. And for others, we are still patiently waiting. And what we are about to witness today is one of God's continued answer to those prayers that we began praying really early on for more pastors or more shepherds or more elders for our church family. So we're going to get a chance this morning to install some elders, and, uh, and we're going to get to witness just God's good work among us, among us. Now, when you think about elders, I think it's just important to recognize this, that according to Acts chapter 20, it's not that a church just like selects someone and like, you know, gives them the mantle of, of pastor. Um, the mantle of pastor is something, according to Acts 20, that the Holy Spirit does in a person among a group of people, and then the church just steps back and recognizes what it is that the Lord has done. That, that's how this whole thing kind of works itself out. And so we're getting a chance this morning to just recognize that work that God's done in us um, and, and for us as a church family and to and officially install you know, two, of, two of our men. So before we do that, though, I want to say a couple of things about what the role of pastoring or eldering is in a local church family. So what does that mean? Like, what, what is it? Um, what, what do you know, pastors and shepherds, what do they do in the context of a church family? So, so let me just do that really quickly. What, let me just start here. What are elders? Um, this is just really briefly before we get to Romans 8. What are elders? Let me give you a working definition so you'll have some sort of a sense of like, what is it that we're doing up here in just a few minutes? What are elders? Elders are the group of rescued, qualified, and competent men who God has charged to shepherd the local church. If you want just a kind of a concise definition of elder, that's your concise definition. Elders are the group of rescued, qualified, and competent men who God has charged to shepherd the local church. So in the Bible, the word elder, overseer, bishop, they're all used interchangeably. So regardless of kind of what tradition you grew up in, if you use any one of those three words to describe the, the overseers of your church, um, the, the, you know, those all work. Those are all good biblical words to describe a, a man who has godly character, deep convictions, who is called, qualified, competent to shepherd the local church. That's what elders are. Now, let me point out two things within that definition just really briefly, and we could talk about this for a long time. But I just want to emphasize the, the word group. It's a group of, of rescued, qualified, and competent men. Um, so we believe in a plurality of eldership here. We believe the Bible teaches that. And, and so what that functionally means is our leadership, you know, kind of structure at Stonegate is not a pyramid centering on one person. That is not our leadership structure. Rather than a pyramid, our leadership structure is a round table with a group of men sitting at that round table. Now, why is that? Not only is there like biblical convictions, that that's what the Bible teaches and, and shows us, but also it's a safeguard for you as a church and it's a safeguard for all of our pastors. It gives them accountability, our pastors accountability, and it gives a safeguard to you to know that it's not a one person thing as far as you know, uh, the people leading us here. So it's a plurality, pastors are in plurality. Secondly, pastors are qualified. Let me just read through this list for you in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Pastors are qualified. Let me just lay out the qualifications of elders. 
This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseers, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Isn't it interesting how um, the qualifications for eldering are less concerned with your work in the church and more concerned with your work in the home? It's interesting to, to note that, that you're proving ground for eldership. It's not your work in the church, but it's your work in your home. Um, verse six, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You know, when I just think about these characteristics on a general sort of a level, I think it's just interesting to note that the qualifications really describe a person who is growing into maturity as a Christian. And I hope that when you read like stuff like that, you don't think, oh, that's for a certain set of people out there, but rather we would all think, man, let's all aspire to that. Let's all aspire to see those things formed in us, that all of those qualifications of eldering formed in us. So pastors are in plurality and pastors are qualified. So that's what elders are. And really quickly, what do elders do? Let me just give you three quick things. And we're just gonna camp on this imagery of shepherd. Um, when you're thinking about what elders are, Elders are shepherds. This is the primary metaphor in the Bible for what it means to be a pastor. Pastors are shepherds. Just in light of that, let me just think through with you three things shepherds do. When you think of shepherding a flock of, of lambs or sheep, what, what do they do? Shepherds, number one, they lead the sheep. So they're responsible to make sure they know where the sheep are going and how they're gonna get them there. In the same way, pastors are responsible for leading a church family. They're responsible for thinking through. This would include things like vision, like where are we going? How are we gonna get there? Stewarding God's resources. All of those things would fall under the role of pastoring um, because shepherds lead. Um, secondly, so shepherds lead the sheep. Secondly, shepherds feed the sheep. A shepherd's responsibility you know, is to make sure that his sheep are well-fed. In the same way, a pastor is responsible to make sure his people, their people, are in the, the good green pastures of God's word where they are feeding and they are nourished well by God's word. So that would be kind of the teaching, preaching, handling God's word component of pastoring. And then thirdly, and just to note this, pastoring requires all three of these things. Not one of these things, two of these things, but all of these things. So shepherds lead the sheep, shepherds feed the sheep, and thirdly, shepherds care for and protect the sheep. So if you think about shepherds, shepherds, they're responsible to fend off wolves, to make sure that they tend and care for sick and wounded sheep. Now in the same way, shepherds in a local church, pastors, elders in a local church are responsible to make sure wolves are not welcome. That's number one, they're not welcome. And for all the sick you know, harassed sheep in a church family, that they are helping them become all by God's grace that God would intend them to be. Okay, that's the role of pastor in a local church family. Now, with that said, I'm gonna ask uh, Valentine and Alicia and Kevin and Elizabeth, wherever they are, to go ahead and come on up. And uh, we, this morning, are going to get to install these two men as some pastors in our church family. Now, as they're walking up, let me just say this before I say anything else about them. I think it's just good for all of us just to feel this that um, I'm about to affirm them in, in some ways, but I, I just want you to hear, they are not perfect people and they are not gonna be perfect pastors. There's only one perfect pastor, his name is who? Jesus. 
Jesus, right? He's the only perfect pastor. It's not any one of us in here. I'll promise you that. So I just want you to make sure you have a healthy perspective of what that means for them. But now in saying that, I do believe that these guys have demonstrated and proven character and competency as they have served our church family. Okay, so with that said, um, I'm going to talk to each of these guys just for a minute. <laughs> no, he did not. He did not. <clears throat> and first to Kevin. You know, when I think about Kevin, here's a few things that just come to my mind. I think Kevin is a good-hearted man. I think Kevin Hill has very high character. Um, you know, one of the things that I most appreciate about Kevin is he has been battle-tested just in the fields of suffering. And, you know, when I think about uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where um, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that those trials are going to do something for you. They're going to produce steadfastness in you. And if you let that steadfastness have its full work in you, here's the effect it's going to do. You're going to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I, I think Kevin, in a lot of ways, proves that that, that verse is true that what James is talking about is true there. You know, when I think of Kevin, I think he is a man that is humble. Um, I, you know, if you've been around him for long, I think you would probably testify that he is a person who has really like a shepherd's heart. Like he cares for people in those sorts of ways, which I just so deeply appreciate. You know, when I think of Kevin, I am appreciative that he knows this in a really deep way, that he is a very sinful man in need of a real savior named Jesus. And I really appreciate that Kevin knows that. I ask a few people just for some one-word descriptions of Kevin. Here's just a sampling of what they said. That he's steady. If you know Kevin, that would probably be his MO. He's steady. He's faithful. He's meek. He's kind-hearted. He's a servant. He's got that shepherd's sort of a heart. All of which, Kevin, are Jesus-like qualities and all evidences of grace in your heart. And to Valentine. Um, man, Valentine, what a crazy four years it has been, huh? <laughs> Valentine came in as a church planning resident four years ago, and I, it, it has been one of the joys of my just personal life over the last four years to see the Lord work in you, Valentine. Um, man, his, his hands have just been all over your life in such deep and profound ways. You know, when I think about Valentine, I think of a man who is, who is winsome, if you've been around him, you know that about him. He is warm and winsome. Um, when I think about just like the personal like gift of hospitality, you're going to sit across the, you know, a table from a person, and how are they going to make you feel? Valentine is one of those people who I think just displays that welcoming heart of God, that winsome heart of God in such beautiful ways. Uh, you know, when I think about him, I, if you ever need like in your life like a sense of like, man, does God really change people? Does he really do that? Man, Valentine is one of those people that I think you can think of. You know, if you're like M.O. as you're a nice guy and Jesus saves you, most of your change is not going to be on the outward level. It's going to be on the motive level. But for Valentine, he has seen both of those two things happen. He has seen both that deep, deep, profound change of heart that the Lord brings for us, and then it has radically realtered the rest of his life. And Valentine, I just want you to know when I think about that for you, man, I am so encouraged by that. It is such the evidence of the Lord. When I think about how you've grown as a husband, as a man, it, it is the grace of the Lord on your life working in you in ways that are just unbelievable. And for um, Elizabeth and for Alicia, as good as these two men are, they have found better ladies. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> and I want y'all to know what a blessing y'all are, first of all, to, to these men. 
um, and what a blessing you are to our church family and have been to our church family. And I want you to know that we really do love you, both of you. Mm -hmm. And so with that said, um, here's what I would like for us to do as a church family. I would like for us to pray for them. And I've got Acts 20, 28. It's going to be up on the screen for you. And I want to read that verse, and then I just want to take a moment, and we're, going to, we're just going to pray this over them. And by the way, let, let me just back up and say this one thing, just so you'll know how this process has worked to get us to this point. Um, it has been about a two-year process of training, of equipping, of like working hands-on in their life um, toward this sort of a moment. And then about 30 or 40 days ago now, we presented them to you as a, we feel like they are called, qualified, and competent. If you know something we don't know, please let us know that. If you don't know them, please get to know them because in about 40 days from now, we're gonna install them. And so all of that work has been done to get us to this point of us looking at them and saying, man, we believe that all those qualifications are met, that we have good, qualified, competent men now to step into this role. And let me say this one other thing about Valentine. Valentine is gonna be like a, he's in for a minute as an elder and then he is like soaring off. Um, he is gonna be planting over the next six or eight months um, and so he is going to be kind of in that sort of a, of a mode of us being able to send him as one of the elders of our church when he plants. So with that, Acts 20, 28 is on the screen. I want to read this, and then we're going to take a moment to pray this passage over these um, men and their families. This is Paul to the elders of Ephesus, and this is what Paul says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So here's what I would like for you to do. I would like for you to just kind of reach out your hand toward these guys and bow your head with me. And we are going to pray for them this morning. And we are going, going to ask the Lord to bless this moment, to bless our church in this moment. And we're gonna ask him to give them all the grace they need to be able to shepherd our church well. So I'm gonna give you a second to pray for them and then I'm gonna step in and pray and finish it. Father, I pray for Kevin and for Valentine. Lord, I pray that they would be men who pay close attention to themselves. It is so easy in all of our lives to lose track of our heart, to, to just have the slow fade happen in our life, where we look up one day and ask the question, how in the world did we ever get here? And Father, I pray that you would give them eyes to see the seeds of sin in their heart, Lord, you'd give them the grace to fight against that sin when they see it. And Father, I also pray that you would help them pay careful attention to the flock that you have given them. Lord, that, that you would give them eyes that would see not just a mass of people called Stonegate Church, but individual people. Individual people in need of shepherding, in need of care, in need of love, sometimes in need of correction. And Lord, I pray that you would help them be faithful in that role. So Father, please help them pay attention to themselves, pay attention to the flock that you have given them. And Lord, I pray that you would give them a deep sense of realizing that, that you are the ones who have made them overseers. 
that, that you are the ones who have done this. This isn't something they can beat their chest and brag about. This is something that should humble us into the dust as we look up at you and look at our own lives and wonder, how in the world could you, have, could you be asking me to step into that? How in the world could you be using me to do those sorts of things? So, Father, I pray that humility would mark their lives as a pastor. And, Father, I pray that you would give them the grace to care for this particular church of yours. Father, would you help them be good shepherds? And, Father, I pray for their families. I pray for their marriages. Father, I pray that you would bless their marriages, that you would keep their marriages from from breaking. You would keep their, their marriages from all the little crevices that have their way of slipping into our marriages. So, Father, would you please, with these two men, bless our church family? And, Father, as a church family, may we just receive this moment from you as just an affirmation of your grace toward us in giving us two additional men to help care for and pastor and lead our church family. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. So, Stonegate Church, why don't we just take a moment of celebrating together two of our newest pastors, Valentine and Kevin. I'm going to ask them to hang around at the end of the service. So as they're kind of making their way off now, I'm going to ask them to hang around at the end so you can come up. They'll kind of be at probably the back door over here. Um, and you can congratulate them. If you don't know them, you need to please get to know them. They're two of the people that God's going to have pastoring and shepherding um, people in our church family. So thank you guys for coming up. Okay, we are to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Last week, we covered two verses, first two verses. Started like this in Romans 8, chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, regardless of your past, regardless of your present, and regardless of your future sin. Here is what Romans 8, 1 announces. It announces that God has hoisted a banner over our lives for everyone who's in Jesus. God has hoisted a banner over our lives called no condemnation. Now, now that is such great news for you and I, isn't it? When your conscience is just pounding you into the dust, when that inner drill sergeant comes up and just mocks you in your sin, we all need the good news of Romans 8.1. We all need to see the banner over our life of no condemnation. But, but God doesn't just lift one banner in Romans 8. He lifts two banners in the first two verses. So, so Romans 8.1 is the banner of no condemnation. Then you get to Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 2. Here comes the next banner. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For the law of the spirit of Christ, for the good news of Jesus, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, Romans 8.1 announces the first banner. Over your life for us to all enjoy. Not just know, but to actually enjoy living there. That the first banner, Romans 8.1, is no condemnation. And then Romans 8.2 announces the second banner. And the second banner reads, your liberation, 
You have actually been set free from the drag of sin in your life. You have been set free from that life-sucking domination of sin in your life. Romans 8.1 and 8.2 are announcing banners that if we are ever going to grow in maturity in Jesus, if we're ever going to do that, they are the two banners that we've got to see and enjoy and know deep down in our soul. Banner number one, no condemnation. But banner number two, you have actually been liberated from sin. You have actually been set free from sin. Do you experience its consequences? Yes, to all of that. But you have been set free from its dominating power in your life. You can actually fight back against that now. You can actually grow up in Jesus. You can actually be conformed into the image of Jesus now. That they are announcing great news for us. No condemnation, Romans 8.1. Your liberation, Romans 8.2. Then you get to Romans 8.3, where we're going to be today. Verse 3. And here is what verse 3 is doing. It is answering the question, okay, if God has pronounced over our life no condemnation, if he's pronounced over our life your liberation, if if those things have happened, how in the world did he do that? How can he say that? How can there really be no condemnation? How can we really be set free from sin? How can can that be? And Romans 8, 3 is gonna answer it with three questions. It's gonna answer three questions into this how. How how can Romans 8, 1 and 2 be true? It answers it like this, or three questions that ask like this. Who has done it? It's gonna answer that, verse three. Second question, what has he done? It's gonna answer that question in verse three. And thirdly, how did he do it? So you get the three questions. Who's done it? What has he done? And then how did he do it? Those are the three questions Romans 8, three is gonna answer for us. So let's just work through them. Number one, who has done it? When we're, when we're talking about Romans 8, one and two, who has done that? Now, when you think about um, Christianity, or let's just back it up one step further. When you think about all the different approaches that people have to God out there. So just think of major world religions, all the different ways that people try to approach God. You could essentially sum up all the approaches to God and you could put them in two categories. You could put them in the category of do, or you could put them in the category of done. And what makes Christianity Christianity is the way that we approach God has nothing to do with our do. That is not Christianity. This is every other way of approaching God out there. I don't care like what other religion you want to talk about. What what other way of approaching God you want to talk about. If you cut it to the core, here is what's at the core of their way of approaching God. It is all about your do. If you're going to approach God, you have to have your do in a line. You have to have your ducks in a row. Your your behavior, your deeds have to be there. So every other way of approaching God has everything to do with your do. But what makes Christianity Christianity is it has nothing to do with your do and everything to do with God's done. That's what makes Christianity distinctively Christian. If you want like a four-word summary of the entirety of Christianity, if you want to just summarize it in four words, the first four words of Romans 8, 3 would be a good place to start. Here is a four-word summary of Christianity. First four words, for God has done. For God has done. That is what makes Christianity Christianity. For God has done. He has done what you could never do for you. God has done that. What you could never do for you, that's what God has done. What makes Christianity distinctively Christian is not your doing. Here's what's gonna be interesting. When you look at verse three, it actually has nothing about your doing in it. 
If you're answering the question, who, who has secured for you no condemnation? Who has secured for you liberation? Here is what Romans 8, 3 is gonna strangely leave out. Anything that you do. N none of your doing is in Romans 8, 3. All of God's done is in Romans 8, 3. He, he is the one that has done this. He is the one that secured for you the great banners of Romans 8.1 and Romans 8.2. That, that is who has, uh, who has done it. Second question, what has he done? What has he done? Look at verse three. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So as we're trying to get our bearings on what God has actually done, so if, if Christianity is not about our doing, but it's about God's done, the question becomes, what has God done? And to get our bearings on what God has done, Romans 8, 3 says, he has done what the law couldn't do. So let's just think about what the law can and can't do for a moment. Let's think about what it can do first. Um, typically, the, the, the law has been you know, described, its uses or its functions or what it can do has been described in three different ways. Traditionally, it's had three uses. Just think through these three uses with me. If you're ever trying to answer the question, what does the law do? These three uses, I think, would get you really close to the, to the biblical kind of concept of what the law does. And you can think of it in three ways, three uses. Number one, uh, the law functions like a muzzle. So think muzzle. Now, what does a muzzle do? A muzzle has a way, the law as a muzzle has a way of restraining sin. So if you have laws in a place, it has a way of people just externally conforming to those laws to keep sin and evil restrained. Just think about it in a real practical way. The fact that, that, that we know that something is wrong and that we will be punished if we do that wrong, that's what a law is saying. Something's wrong, you're gonna be punished if, if you do it wrong. The fact that we know something's wrong and we're gonna be punished if, it's, you know, if we do wrong, that keeps a lot of us from doing a lot of bad things, doesn't it? Just the fact that knowing it's wrong, and if I do wrong, I'm going to be punished. That keeps a lot of crazy in the bucket. I mean, the law has a way of like sliding a lid over the evil of our heart, sliding kind of a, a, a board over the, the evil and the, the badness in our heart to keep it contained in there, to keep it restrained in there. And, and now, hear me, it, it's not changing your heart in that way. But it is just restraining. This is one of the uses of the law. It has a way of restraining evil. It functions like a muzzle. Here's the second thing we can say about the law. Second use is a mirror. So first use is a muzzle. Second use is a mirror. It shows us who we are and what we really need. Who we are, deep down at our core, really, really sinful, and what it is that we really, really need. Now, this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. Paul is talking about the law in this category, this use. He says it's like a mirror. And when you stand up in front of that mirror of the law, when it's telling you what to do and what you shouldn't do, that law is now doing things to us as a mirror. And as a mirror, he says in Romans 7, it exposes our sin. It helps us see just how sinful we are. He said, Paul in Romans 7 says that when he learned the command, you shall not covet, that's when he realized his heart was always coveting. He never stopped coveting. But, but it took that command to expose his heart. He, the, the commands have that sort of a function in us. They show us that even on our best day, that best day full of our best deeds, even on that day, we are still commandment breakers. The law shows us that it exposes our sin. He, he goes on in Romans 7 to say it provokes our sin. We talked about this last week. If somebody um, put, looks at a big red button and they look at you and say, whatever you do, don't push the big red button. What do all of us naturally want to do? 
We want to push the big red button, right? He says, that's what the law does. It not only shows us our sin, it actually like stirs up my sinful heart when I just hear somebody say, don't do that or do that. When I hear somebody say, do that, I just don't want to do it. When I hear somebody say, don't do that, I just kind of naturally want to do it. He's saying it just has this way of provoking his sin as a way of exposing just how deep and dark the whole of sin goes in him. And and then he goes on to say that the law, not only as a mirror exposes our sin or provokes our sin, it also condemns our sin. That The law has this way of showing us what God's moral standard is, and then when we fall short of that moral standard, it pronounces over our life, you are guilty. You, you are condemned in your failure of meeting God's righteous moral requirement. You're condemned in that. It pronounces over our life not no condemnation, but death. That, that's what sin does for us. It's a mirror that shows us what we really are and what we really need. And thirdly, it's a map. So muzzle, mirror, map. These are the three uses of the law. The third use, a map. For a person who's been rescued by Jesus, the law now shows us God's will for our life. It shows us. It it paints the picture for us. This is what it looks like to love God and love your neighbor. The law is showing us that. That's why Jesus summarizes the law in two big sweeping statements. Here's the summary of the law. You love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of the law. It's showing us what a life of love toward God and neighbor look like. It's a map in that way for a person who's been rescued and redeemed by Jesus. That's what the law does. Now let's just contrast that. Let me just try to paint the picture now. If that's what the law does, what does it not do? Let me just summarize this in a couple of statements. We could say it this way. The law has restraining power. That's the first use. It operates like a muzzle, keeping um, you know, a lid over the evil and badness you know, in all of our hearts. The law has restraining power. So it can temporarily kind of mold our external actions, but it has no redeeming power. The, the law can restrain sin, but it just can't redeem our souls. It, it, does, it can't do that. It doesn't have the power to do that. That's the first use of the law. Second use of the law. The law has revealing power, right? That's the second use. It can show us who we aren't. It can show us the sin in us. It has revealing power, exposing power. So it, re, it, it reveals things in us, but it doesn't have rescuing power. It, it can show us who we aren't, but it can't do for us what we need done. Someone else is going to have to do that. Something else is going to have to do that. Thirdly, the law points to us what a sanctified life looks like. That's the third use, the map. It shows us that's what it looks to grow up in maturity. That's what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbor. That's what a sanctified life looks like. But the law possesses no sanctifying power. Are we seeing that? The law can do certain things, but it just can't do other things. It can reveal our sin but it can't redeem our hearts. It just cannot do that. So the question becomes, if if we're sitting here today and we're like, man, I see my sin. I I get that. I can see it. I just, I am in need of redemption. I am in need of rescue. I don't just want to see my sin. I want to be rescued from my sin. If that's what you want, the law cannot do that. But verse three answers who can do that. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could never do. What what can God do? He can actually change us. He can actually transform us. He can actually liberate us. He is the one that can actually pronounce over our life no condemnation. God, not the law, can do that. Grace, not the law, can do that. Look look at that word for at the beginning of verse uh, 3. That word four in verse three is pointing back 
to, to verses one and two. It is connecting verse three to one and two. So that word four is, is helping us see the answer to the question. What has God done? God, not the law. God is the one who has pronounced over our life what the law never could. He is the one who has done this. He's lifted up and hoisted that banner of no condemnation over our life. But you might raise the objection, do you know my sin? God is saying yes. Because of the law, we all know your sin. But God has lifted up the banner that the law could never lift and he's written over your life no condemnation. He's he's hoisted the banner. He's lifted up the banner over your life that says you are liberated from sin. You are no longer under the drag and under the dominion of sin. All of that is gone. You are now liberated. Now, let me just apply this really briefly because here's what I think happens to virtually all of us in the room. Now, think about what's happening here. God is saying, or Paul is saying here, that God has done what the law could not do. Change us. Pronounce over our life no condemnation. Begin to transform our life, to to redeem us, to rescue us. That is what God has done. And he has done that through through grace. He has done that through the good news of Jesus. But I want you just to think for a minute. Because here's the thing. Everyone in this room, if you looked at your life right now, you would be looking at things. If we just like... We put the law in front of you and you're looking at your life. We would all be in need of change this morning, right? There's not one of us in this room who's not looking at your life thinking, man, I would love for these things to be different. I would love for that to be out of my life. I'd love for this to be in my life. So there's not one of us that are looking at our life thinking we want change. And many of us are in the room today and we're thinking about other people and we're thinking they need change. My kids need change. My husband, my my wife needs changing. Now, here is what we're all so prone to do when we're thinking about that need for change. We we are so prone to think that here's what they really need if they're gonna change. Let's lay down the threats of the law to them. Let's read them the right act and then they're gonna change, right? I mean, let's show them what they've done. Let's make sure they they hear the threats of the law and that's gonna produce the change in us or in them that they want. And here is what Romans 8, 3 is showing us. That's just not true. You will never see the sort of change that the Lord wants in your life and that you want in your life by the threats of the law. If you look throughout the New Testament, you're gonna search in vain for moments where the law is the motive for our obedience. You're just not gonna find that. But here's what you're gonna find over and over and over again. You're gonna find Paul in Ephesians start out with three chapters of what God has done. Three whole chapters. The, the whole book is six chapters. He spends six or three of the six chapters all on what God has done. He doesn't even give us one, or he actually gives us one command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. The one command is, will you please just remember what God has done? Just remember it. I'm telling it to you, just remember it for crying out loud. That's the, one, that's the one command he gives us. He gives us three chapters of what God has done. And then after he has established what God has done, then he tells us what we can then do. But it's knowing what God has done that enables a life of doing. And if you get that switch, you have completely missed Christianity. You are now in every other category, every other way of approaching God. It's through your doing, not by what God has done. What God has done is both the motive of our justification, how we are made right with God, and it's the motive of our sanctification, how we grow in conformity to Jesus. All of that happens based on what God has done. 
based on the grace and gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the, that is the deep down cause of all of our transformations in here. So if you're in that place this morning and you're thinking, man, I so desperately want change in my life, hear me. It's not by looking at your sin that you're gonna get transformation. And it's not by looking at the threats of the law that you're gonna have transformation. It is when your heart hears from God, like only our hearts can hear, this divine pronouncement over our life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's when change is gonna start. That that's when it's gonna be progressing in your life. That's when you're gonna start growing in conformity to Jesus in your life. So who has done it? God, how has he done, or what has he done? He's done what the law couldn't do. He's pronounced over our life, no condemnation. He's pronounced over our life, our liberation. And then thirdly, we're gonna end here. How did he do it? And I just wanna kind of think through this question with you. How did he do it? How, how, did, God, how did God change us? Like what, 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 what did he do to be able to lift up the banner of no condemnation? What did he do to be able to lift up the banner of our liberation? What, what did he do for those things to be true in our life? I mean, how can that be true in our life? How could, that, how could I possibly ever look up in my life knowing the depths of sin in my life and ever feel deep down that there's no condemnation? How? What, what has he done to produce that? Now, before we work through the rest of, of verse three, can, can you just take a minute and like, man, I just want you to be able to breathe deep this morning and enjoy this. Just allow verse three to refresh your soul this morning. I mean, some of you, what I'm about to say, you've heard many times in your life before, because we're just about to get to walk through the good news of Jesus. And if you've heard it many times before, just, will you just maybe even now ask the Lord to just give you a refreshing sense of yes to that. That, that is true. So just enjoy this for a minute. What has God done? He tells us in verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So, so what did God do here? How, how did he go about doing this? He did it like this, by sending his own son. What did God do? God the Father sent God the Son. This is what you call grace without a governor. This is God Almighty looking at us and giving, him, or giving us his most precious and beloved possession. That's what you call grace. God the Father giving God the Son, sending God the Son. Now, what makes this so staggering to me is that God the Father knew what happened to everyone else he had ever sent to his people. He knew that. A few weeks ago, we, we just kind of worked through just some of the Old Testament prophets just as we thought about this. I mean, think about the other people that God had sent to his people. People like Elijah. What happened to Elijah? He was driven about in the wilderness like a wild animal. I mean, chase like a dog. That was Elijah's story. How about Zechariah, another one of God's prophets who God had sent to his people. Zechariah was stoned to death. God's saying, hey, people, let me give you grace. I'm gonna send to you one of my servants. What do they do? They stone him. They kill him. Um, think about Isaiah chapter, or, or the life of Isaiah, in particular Isaiah chapter six. You remember the story of Isaiah? Um, he's got this moment where he appears inside the temple, this incredible moment with God. And after that moment happens, the Lord says, you know, who is going to go for me? Who, who shall I send? Isaiah has this moment of saying, here am I, send me. And God says, okay, I'm sending you. But do you remember kind of what happened after that for Isaiah? 
The Lord looks at him and says, okay, I'm sending you Isaiah, but here's the thing. You're gonna preach and no one's gonna listen. No one's gonna listen. And as tradition has it, he was, this is how it ended for Isaiah. He was sawn in two. How about our prophet Jeremiah? It went so badly for Jeremiah that he wrote a whole book called Lamentations. You know your life is bad when that's one of your books, right? You know you've had a rough go at it. It went so bad for, uh, for Jeremiah. He preached repentance to the people of Israel. They refused that. They put him in prison in stocks. They threw him in a pit and left him uh, to die. How about our man, John the Baptist? Another one of God's just gracious gifts to the people of Israel to come in, to warn them, to call them to repentance. How did they treat the person that God had sent? John the Baptist, his life ended in a dungeon with decapitation. That's how his life ended. And we could just go down the list, right? I mean, it's just the long story of God graciously sending one person after another to warn the people of Israel, to, to call them to repentance as a gift to them. And they would over and over and over brutalize and abuse them over and over and over again. Now, and we just kind of always ask this question at this moment. If you were God, what would you have done? I'll just tell you what I would not have done. I would not have said, after you've done all of that, let me give you my very best. Let, let me give you my most precious gift. Let me give you my beloved son. Let me do that. That's not how I would have responded. But aren't we grateful that we have a big-hearted God? Amen. A big-hearted God who would send us his very best in the person of his son. God the Father sent his son. What else did he do? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God the Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So God the Father sent God the Son, and God the Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now we are right into the incarnation here. We are right into what we celebrate at Christmas. God Almighty becomes a baby and he walks and dwells among us. Now, when I think of the incarnation, here is the way I always picture the incarnation. It is God looking at us in our sin and misery, knowing that we can't get out of our sin and misery. Even if we're trying, which we're not, we can't get out of it if we were. We're stuck in our sin and misery. And the incarnation, God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, it is God looking at us stuck in our sin and misery and saying to us, hey, you stuck in your sin and misery, just wait right there, I'll come and get you. That's the incarnation. That God would send his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now you might circle that word likeness. That is a big word in this phrase in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is showing us two things that we need to know about God the Son, two things. First of all, it is showing us that God became one of us, that God the Son, he, he actually became one of us. He walked among us. When God the Father was thinking about, or God the Son was thinking about, hey, um, they're in distress down there. I mean, they, they've got a real problem down there. That problem's gonna have to be dealt with. They didn't think of the solution like this. How about we just kind of keep it arm's length and kind of do some sort of surgical procedure from kind of way out here and fix their problem. That's not how they did it. It was not a arm length fix. It was a God in the person of his son coming and walking among us, like actually becoming one of us in our likeness, like a human being, like one of us in our category of human. He became like us. He became one of us. But that word likeness also shows us this. Although he was, you know, became one of us, he didn't sin like all of us. So he became one of us, yes, but he didn't sin like the whole of us. 
He was perfect. Every last, you know, every last I in the, in the law was dotted in the life of Jesus. Every last T was crossed in the life of Jesus. Both in, hear this, desire and in deed, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Think of every moment that you have ever felt in your life, the variety of circumstances that you have felt in, the frequency of your failures in your life. I mean, if the, if the, if the mirror of the law is in front of you, we don't go but about three seconds without another failure. And they're deep and they're dark failures. And just hear me on this. For every place that you have failed, for every place that you have fallen, Jesus has perfectly succeeded. In both desire and deed, perfectly succeeded. In the likeness of sinful flesh. He became one of us without sinning like all of us. What else did God do? God the Father sent God the Son. God the Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He goes on, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, for sin. God the Son became a sin offering. If you ever wanna know how you can become an instant Bible scholar, you don't, have to, don't even have to go to seminary, uh, seminary to do this. You ever wondered how? Instant Bible scholar. Don't even know anything else, but this is how you can become an instant Bible scholar. Just look at your footnotes. That's all you have to do. Right, so just take a look at your footnotes. If you've got an ESV, you're gonna have a little um, number right beside that sin offering phrase. And if you look down, instant Bible scholar, you're gonna see down below, it's gonna say, or a sin offering. And that word sin offering, that phrase sin offering is showing us, it's, it's unpacking, it's lifting up the curtain of what this phrase, he became sin for us means. It means that he actually became a sin offering for us. This is what Jesus has done for us. You know, when you read the Old Testament, right now we're on a Bible reading plan. It goes through half the Old Testament this year, half the Old Testament next year. It's really great. If you're not on it, I would suggest you get on it. It's really great. Um, but if you start reading the Old Testament, here's one of the things that you're gonna realize really, really quickly. The Old Testament is a bloody book, isn't it? I mean, there's stuff dying all the time in the Old Testament. But you barely read a page without something dying. And, and the reason for that is, is that God had set up a whole sacrificial system to deal with the sin of the people of Israel. It's a whole ceremonial sacrificial system to do that. So I just want you to imagine a moment. You're watching a, a man bring an animal to the priest. And he's bringing this animal as a sin offering. This is a good animal. It's been a perfect animal. It's without blemish. And he's bringing this, this animal to the priest. And, and now you, you've got the priest who transfers the sin of this man over onto this animal. So you've got all of his sin leaving him and, and being applied to this animal. Because here's how God has set it up for you, for me, and for them. He has set it up this way. Either you're going to have to die for your sin or something else is going to have to die for your sin. So the Old Testament is all about an animal dying for your sin rather than you dying for your sin. So that the sin of this, this man is now transferred over to this, to this um, you know, animal, this goat or this, this lamb. And then the priest would then slaughter that lamb as the symbol of this man is not paying for his sin. This animal is now going to pay for his sin. That, that is a sin offering. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. Now you get to the New Testament. Here's what we find out. That that whole sacrificial system, according to Hebrews, is all a signpost. It is all a signpost and the signpost on it, on the whole sacrificial system says, please see Jesus. 
because he is the fulfillment of that whole sacrificial system. He is the signpost. He is the one that that whole thing is pointing to. So think about the life of Jesus. He is the perfect lamb. He lived without blemish. He was one of us without sinning like us, crossing every T of the law, dotting every I of the law in both deed and desire with his life. He perfectly fulfills the law. And now he is brought up beside us on that bloody cross a couple of thousand years ago. And on that cross, him hanging there on that tree, all of the penalty of our sin, all of the punishment of our sin, all of that comes crashing down on Jesus. All of our sin, all of its condemnation, all of its penalty, all of its punishment is now transferred over to Jesus. That is Jesus becoming a sin offering for you and I. That is the good news of Jesus in a nutshell, right? This is 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who knew no sin, he was sinless. He became sin for you and I in order that you and I could now have his righteousness. I mean, that, that is the good news of Jesus in a nutshell. But God has done even more, it says. Lastly, last phrase in verse three, God the Son condemned sin. He wasn't just a sin offering for us. He actually went on to condemn sin for us. He took the punishing, persecuting power of the law that condemns us. And Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, hear this, condemned that sin. Let me say that again. Jesus took the punishing, persecuting power of the law that condemns us, and then Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, condemned that sin. What condemned us, Jesus condemned. I mean, he just turned the whole thing upside down. What, what was used as a penalty against us, now he penalizes what was punishing us, Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, he now punishes all so that now we could have this open relationship with God. Also, that sinners like us who know we're in deep, dark trouble can open up our hands and in faith receive Jesus and right standing with God. That, that is what God has done for us in the person and work of his son. Let, let me just summarize all of that in a metaphor and we're done. There's a story told of an old Russian czar and uh, this czar had a friend whose son was dying. And before the man died, he said, uh, he said, would you please adopt my son? C could you please do that for me? And the czar, the, the Russian emperor said, of course, I I'll do that for you. The man went on to die and he went on to adopt the son. And when he adopted the son, all the rights and privileges of the czar, of the, the emperor, of the king of Russia, all of those rights and privileges now you know, were bestowed upon the son. Um, but the truth is the son wasn't a very good guy. Um, he had a lot of problems. He went on to go into the military, um, the military of his dad, of the, of the king. And in the military, he developed a gambling habit, just one of his many vices. And like gambling so often does, it spawns a lot of other problems in our life and it spawned more problems in his life. And so this gambling habit turned to embezzling to cover his gambling habit. And he could all keep this whole scheme going because he was actually the bookkeeper for the whole division in this army. And so, uh, so as the bookkeeper, he's cooking the books. He, he's making this whole thing work. But finally, it gets to the point where he knows the gig is up. Man, he is in trouble. The, the books have been cooked. All the books can be cooked, and he is in deep trouble. The whole thing is about to be found out, and it is hopeless. He cannot cover this up any longer. So that night, he goes into his tent where the, tent where they are, the army is camped, 
And uh, he's, you know, pouring over the books. He's come to the conclusion that it is hopeless. There is no way he can continue going in, in this scheme. You know, he is about to be fi- found out. And he just could not live with the guilt and shame and condemnation that he felt in his sin. And so he decides that he's going to kill himself. So he takes out his revolver and he's got his revolver in one hand and he's just needing the courage to do it. So he decides I'm going to drink and drink and drink until I actually have the courage to pull the trigger on this gun. And as he drinks and drinks and drinks, he never gets around to pulling the trigger because he passes out. And the czar would just have this kind of weird thing that he would typically kind of, you know, every now and then do where he would dress up in civilian kind of clothes or kind of normal army clothes and he would just walk among his troops. And this one particular night he was doing that. He was walking among his people and, uh, and just kind of getting a sense of like, what's the morale? What are they saying? What are they doing? How are the people that make up this army? How, how are they? And then at one point he pops his head into the tent of his son and he sees his son passed out. And it doesn't take him long to realize what's going on. His, you know, the books that have been cooked are wide open and he sees that he has been embezzling a lot of money. He sees that he's got the revolver in hand that he intended to kill himself. He sees it all. He knows it all. And in that moment, he writes a note to his son and he seals it with his stamp, the stamp of the czar, and he leaves it there on the books. The next day, the son wakes up and he sees a note from his dad, the czar of Russia. He sees the note and it's sealed with his stamp. He knows it's from him. He, he unlocks the envelope and he looks inside and, and he sees this from his dad, the czar. I, the czar, forgive all of your debts. They are paid in full. In that moment, that man knew my dad, the king, has seen it all down to the dirty depths of me and he's forgiven me. He's accepted me. He still loves me. Now, if you wanna put Romans 8, one through three in a metaphor, that's your metaphor. God, the son, he has come down. He has taken on our clothes He has walked and he has dwelt among us. And hear me, he has seen into your heart, into the dirty depths of it. There is nothing that you have ever thought that he he doesn't know. I mean, you know those thoughts and those moments in your life where you would just have this, even now you'd have this deep sinking thing of like, if everybody else in this room knew that, I would want to run out of this room. Jesus knows that. He has stared all the way into the worst part of you, the deepest, darkest part of you. He knows it all. He he not only knows your past and your, he knows what the sins you're gonna commit a year from now that are gonna shock you when you do it. He knows all, he knows you better than you know you. He knows it all and he has left you a note over all of your junk, over all of your failures, over all of your weaknesses, he has left this note to you. And he is inviting us all to open it up and to enjoy it this morning. Here's the note. Now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment just to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful and 
to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And And I'm just praying that the, the Lord would give you a deep sense this morning of God has done everything needed in the person and work of his son to lift and hoist the banner of no condemnation. To lift and hoist the banner of you are liberated from your sin. It is no longer your master. It is no longer God power over you. Oh, that we would hear that. And isn't it amazing in Romans 8, 3, you didn't contribute to that. You didn't do something to secure that. You didn't work your way into condemnation and you can't fail your way out of no condemnation. I love how one old theologian said it. He said, to to answer that age-old question, what must I do to be saved? He says, here's the answer in Romans 8, 3. The answer is nothing. Everything's been done for you. All you have to do is open up your weak hands and receive it. And if you're willing to open up your weak hands and receive it this morning, God Almighty will rescue you. He'll do what the law could never do. He'll rescue, he'll redeem you. And for some of us in the room, it's like, man, I've become a Christian, but it's like, yeah, and we're still in need of a lot of redemption this morning, aren't we? And and so God is saying, yeah, I'll today redeem. Today rescue. Today remind you of no condemnation. Today work in you your liberation. You are free from the power of sin. Oh, that God would help us see that. And if you're in the room this morning and you've never opened up your life to the Lord, there's never been a moment where you have let go of all of your law-keeping attempts to work into no condemnation. You've never let go of your way of approaching God that has always said, if I can just do these things, then. This is your morning to do that. This is your morning to turn from all of those vain law-keeping attempts, all of your sin, and now to throw your life upon Jesus. And and here's the great thing. If you do that this morning, if you'll just receive by faith the good work of God for you, he will rescue you. He, He will change you. He will deliver you. He'll redeem you. So God, would you help us in this? God, would you help us in this? Would you give us courage this morning to respond however it is that that would be appropriate with you personally working in our heart this morning? It's in your good name we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.